Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Because Big Mike has got the life starting now. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike. Mike Zlatnik. Today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome Lane Kawaoka. Hi, Lane. Hey, Mike. How's it going? Aloha, everybody. Yeah. Uh, uh, aloha. That's how you say it in Hawaii, right? <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. And you hail from Hawaii. How long have you been living in Hawaii? Um, I grew up here, but I was in Seattle for maybe about a dozen years, but... You know, as the saying goes, uh, live where you want, invest where the numbers make sense. So I like I like to be warm. Um, although I like where you guys are out out there out there in New York. Um, we've actually got a couple hotels out there now, but um, yeah, you know, I, I I like the the warm weather out here for sure. <laughs> you certainly have a better climate than <laughs> here in New York, although we have all four seasons. But you certainly enjoy Hawaiian paradise. So, Lane, I guess you're a founder of a few uh, great websites, um, crowdfundaloa.com, uh, simplepassivecashflow.com, uh, REI Aloha, and uh, you, I guess, own a control. Forgive me, I, I'm saying this, <laughs> you, you know more than yeah, I do, over 10,000 units across uh, various uh, markets. So... Before we dive into real estate, a um, couple of words about you. Uh, obviously, live in Hawaii. Um, family? Any any anything about you and your family? You want to say? Yeah, I got a two year old now, so that's probably why I haven't been making it out to some of the the circuits, um, especially in the pandemic. But um, but yeah, life changed a little bit recently. Um, but uh, now funny. I realize not a lot of investors get started actively when their kids are are young and born and until the kids get to be about eight to 10 years old, at least what I see with my investors, you know, it's kind of like a no man's land for doing anything when the kids are young like that. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. It's listen, uh, when you have small kids, it's a lot of attention. So it's either you're going to be doing it or your significant other. Uh, and if you want your kids to get good, uh education good life good good parenting you have to be there for them so uh all right so let, let's jump into real estate um so what's kind of what's hot out there today um is is kind of multifamily sector uh, it's been bitten up a little bit it's been it's been a number of concerns with interest rates having risen up and some of the challenges managing post-pandemic, the Class C properties have been more difficult to manage than most folks thought. So you're seeing opportunities shifting from Class C into something better like Class B. Um, what, what, what's been? What, what have you been up to? Kind of just yeah, curious, yeah. I mean, are you seeing the opportunities? You know, I think like with a lot of operators, we got started with a lot of Class C assets because you know that's all the brokers would give us access to, right? Um, luckily, we sold a lot of that prior to 2021 when there was a nice selling um cycle there part of the reason why is you know a lot of those class c assets they're smaller you can't really support a, a property manager there and then you know extra handyman staff to knock out other third-party punch lists like plumbing and hvac so 
a lot of those properties, I mean, it wasn't uncommon to be in like the eight, 20% delinquency. So economic vacancy of, um, or economic occupancy of 80% coming in. Um, still profitable, not from a cash flow basis, but from, you know, value add, you know, severely taking those kind of distressed properties and bumping it up. But a lot of the assets that we went into, uh, you know, after 2019, we kind of stepped up to it. To our, to our thought, we are trying to get to more B-class, a little bit better clientele. But, you know, going through the pandemic and then eviction moratoriums and, you know, you start to realize there's not much difference between tenants who have $50 in their savings account or no savings account at all to those who have $500, $1,000. It's still, it's still one, one, one bad thing happening from just being out on the streets, right? Um, so, I mean, you know, probably a lot of investors listening on this, they've kind of heard the narrative, right? The pandemic happened and then eviction moratorium started to happen and, and then you know, a little bit of, you know, staying put and then, you know, off to the races in terms of rents. But right now, um, rents are, are a bit stagnant, right? Um, yeah, rent growth has slowed down for sure in many markets. Of course, it's different market by market. Things are different. Uh, why are rent, rent growth have stagnated? Uh, is there extra supply of product being brought to the market? Just curious, uh, what's what's happening out there there were a lot of uh housing starts um a few years ago including sort of in the post-pandemic era and some of the product must be coming to the market right now yeah and 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 i've got a couple i theories and ideas and you know one of them is this is a bit of a us like kind of a train slack uh, hit slack coming out of the system post-pandemic right because like 2021 was just a phenomenal year of rents going up like in phoenix where we operate i think you had like 10 some depends on where you got your data there are like 10 20 percent rent increases per year where normally you, you want to underwrite maybe three percent for a hot market like phoenix and now i think it might even be a little bit negative at this point but that in that very you know up and down market maybe you can call las vegas very similar to in a similar market where it gets really hot and cold you know, certainly there's a bounce back effect, but the sec my second theory is kind of what you were alluding to there, you know, across all markets, you have general supply that's coming online. That's a little bit more than what the needs are normally. Um, but it's not like, you know, people need to understand that there's always thousands of units coming online in a certain MSA, even maybe a hundred, a 10,000 units coming online. You know, it it's always like a fresh blood supply, if you think about it, because the housing stock is always, always kind of getting older and older and older. Um, of course, it's hard to kind of figure out, you know, your class D and F product. When are they exactly being bulldozed, right? What is the decay rate of that? But you always need to have fresh supply coming online. Um, and, you know, I look at like the rent increases per year, that's kind of indicative of the supply and demand dynamic and, and takes into account of what new inventory is coming online. But, you know, my, my whole theory on this is, you know, if you look back two years ago and the, the two year slack back is, I think an important um, rule of thumb, you know, when, if you look up, you know, people can look up this data on this on housing starts. So housing starts, doesn't matter if it's single family home 
or an apartment unit, it gets kind of monetized as a housing start. So when you're looking at these starts, you know, you're going to see the that go to market typically a couple of years later. You know what you're going to go through construction um, and you're going to it's going to go to market and now compete with your existing uh, housing supply there. So if you look back around 2020, you know, if you would have started a project in early 2020, which maybe maybe would have not been practical due to the pandemic and probably got delayed a little bit. That inventory would have been coming online 2022 uh, in the beginning of that year. And I think what you're starting to see is the after effects of 2021 and a half. I think that's when the interest rates started to be jacked up, right? I, it's hard, sometimes it's hard to remember. But the second half of that 2021 was when those interest rates really started to become a head scratcher for new builders come in. I, I remember because we finished um, one of our projects in October. And then I remember Thanksgiving kind of going back and forth with the lender and being like, whoa, what's happening here? So I certainly know Q4 2021 when this dynamic was in full effect. So basically what you're happening, you're having a lot of the builders, the developers get, get the wind sucked out of their sails. So again, you got to apply two years forward. So if, if the brakes got hit quarter four of 2021, now you're going to start to see that supply kind of stop or drastically go down. Uh, what is that? 2023 quarter four. So that's about now, right? Or that's coming up. Um, so it kind of makes sense. Yeah, that's a very interesting perspective. The two-year delay, uh, by the way, the term that I like to use on what, what you described, that the rents we're going up a lot and you know double digit and then they slow down and even turn negative is a wonderful term it's kind of a fancy sounding but it describes it's called reversion to the mean or reversion to the average uh as that's exactly what happens when the rents outpace the historic average at some point they have to go flat line or slightly negative at some point of time to revert to a historic average sort of per se but back to the theory on two-year delay Pretty interesting. Yes, the um, we're recording this in um, uh, second half of July, twenty twenty three, and we go back two years. The interest rates just started to show signs of uh, increase um, at that time, and you're right. By uh, the late part of twenty twenty one, a lot of pain was beginning to 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 be felt. It wasn't a complete pain because actually. The rates started moving, but the Fed hasn't yet raised rates. It was kind of uh, bonds were beginning to uh, move ahead of the Fed, expecting the Fed to make the move. Um, but from a new construction start, high interest rates obviously increase the cost of construction, and developers uh, probably were beginning to slow down. Uh, maybe not completely stop, but at least be mindful of the environment that they they were getting meaningful headwinds so now uh all that supply has been coming to the market and maybe it'll it'll slow down because the starts uh in 2022 have been substantially slower right so we will probably see some level of um slower deliveries relative to i mean so if it's a two-year delay that, that that math makes a lot of sense so right. yeah i appreciate and you sharing 
so what are you doing now? Are you investing in new construction now, or you're sitting and waiting for the market for the market to go full cycle? Because yeah, I mean, the it's hard right now to get financing. Now, it's two years from now, right? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to get financing, but that's kind of where we what we see is the opportunity, and a lot of that's you know like like a lot of groups like ITR Economics, you know, when they show their housing start forecasts and how it bottoms out here next year. That's the time to go to, you know, go to construction so you can pop out two years ahead and in, in a place where not a, not a lot of new inventory is coming online. And hopefully by then, if you've kind of fallen the, the forward curve on interest rates, maybe we're back down another point or maybe a point and a half down in the future. And that's, you know, that's the kind of thing where a lot of us are thinking that is the time that's going to be a very hot market, right? That culmination between moderate interest rates and this built up um, demand due to low supply at that point. So it's it's kind of like that that saying where, you know, when you go through resistance, you want to push through, but that's the whole reason. It's not really, if you can push through while other people aren't surviving, then there's more kind of spoils of war at the end when you get to the finish line. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one of the things is getting lending. And if you're going to have to come in with a little bit more equity, which is, I think, difficult for a lot of retail investors at this point, right? A lot of people on the street are saying, well, there's a recession coming. I need to hold on to capital. So yet again, another variable or a barrier for operators to get those LP dollars from investors, and a lot of which may have a retail investor mindset where they're seeing what's happening in the news headlines and you know want to hoard cash a little bit. Yeah, that is uh, absolutely accurate. I, I concur with you. Higher debt service and in, in the um, headline news or headline no noise is discouraging folks to participate or from participating in new construction. But the question, let, let's just compare. Uh, I, I like to compare this. So new construction, if you're a contrarian player, you, you go in when everybody's out, right? You basically start building when everybody stopped building. And that's when you can get the best deals in theory, but your cost of financing is it's high. So obviously you have to raise more equity and which is hard to do. And it's, it's been a difficult journey, but then on the other side, on the new construction side, you can't really get a discount on the construction cost. It costs what it costs to build. So the, thought process here is uh, labor material costs. They might slightly come down. Inflation may slow down. I don't know if it's going to reverse, but at least the slowdown in inflationary pressures. But the cost to build is still cost to build. Uh, how do you compare this to trying to get a deal maybe on a better uh, distressed, you know, if you don't want to go class C, go class B assets in multifamily. Try to find a distressed seller, not necessarily a distressed asset, but a distressed seller where um, you can get a better price per door, even though it's not a new product, but it's a product that if you do right marketing, you can theoretically get a better price um, relative to the new construction. Because new construction, yes, it's a newer product and it might have its own supply demand uh, forces. But at the same time, uh, the biggest challenge that I, I, I see with new construction today, it's really difficult to have the numbers pencil unless you're going to expect or you're going to perform a substantial increases in prices because interest rates will cycle back down because your cost of money just gone up a lot, right? 
and you you you're building on a lower leverage because you're doing lower leverage, higher cost of money, your returns on equity just look less attractive. If you if you take a conservative valuation approach in the future, uh, uh, value of the asset. Uh, I'm just kind of thinking out loud. You tell me what what are you seeing? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe new construction can look very attractive today, uh, but I'm not looking at the right type of opportunities. Yeah, I mean, we kind of stay, we're in the same conundrum, right? Because we kind of come from the world of operating the class B and C multifamily. I'll start off with the things that we don't like now, right? I mean, we just had inflation, double-digit inflation. Some would argue that it's still here. But when you have, you know, you're in markets like, you know, like Dallas, for example, or Harris County in Houston, like a lot of those taxes have tripled, right? And I think I'm sure you guys talk a lot about the insurance, right? Tri- insurance has tripled, maybe some places quadrupled. Um, and then in addition to all line items on your P&L. So in terms of going into, op- you know, assets where you have to operate value add op- assets, you still have a lot of variability for those prices to go up there. And that was kind of the big selling point, I think, to investors with value add projects is you had cash flow supposedly, right, on a quarterly basis. But if these costs continue to go up, likely they will, you know, there went a lot of your cash flow anyway. And then now at least that's kind of looking at from the con perspective on the multifamily value add side. Um Going back to the development side, right, you kind of mentioned, well, you know, you can't really ascertain your costs right away. But a lot of that is, you know, you what you can do, like you can, in a way, it's kind of mitigating or de-risking a little bit of, you know, doing a guarantee maximum price contract. You still can't price in your materials, right? That's always not really insurable in a way, but to kind of build that contract and then at least lock it in at that point. Um, as far as leverage goes, sure, you can maybe you can't get as big of a first name note, but I guess what, what we'll do is sometimes is bring in a preferred equity lender to increase that leverage from that perspective. Now, there are pros and cons of doing that, of course, right? But when you're working with a non-predatory bank to come in as a pref equity, that leverage can really juice your returns there. But you couple that with bringing in extra capital in case there those those things you mentioned the prices increase so that's kind of the way that we'll play that um additionally you know with with a lot of like changes that will happen in you know the monthly family value add side on on the expenses equation we don't really have to contend with that um, once we once we build at that point if those types of expenses like insurance electricity whatnot goes up then we'll just sell it. So we're kind of mitigating those types of risks on that side. Um, but you know, I think from the big picture point of view, I mean, I'm looking at what people are buying. Some of the I see these deals float around. They're buying properties in you know Texas for two hundred twenty thousand dollars a unit, and I'm like, well, if you can just build that for Class A, that's for, what, thirty years newer. And doesn't have a big capex budget to begin with. That's what I'm looking at from that perspective. And again, if I can build something for the same price, people are buying 30, 40 year old properties with a big capex plan, which is why they're doing the value add on in the first place. 
then you know that's there's a big big differential in terms of value and and potential profit there yeah the the, the build new hypothesis or 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 build new um strategy if you can build at a cost similar to the old of course you're better off with the new i i, I couldn't argue with you the whole uh, idea to buy all this if you can buy it at a steep discount the cost of insurance well insurance is skyrocketed in many markets right and uh insurance is something that's going to be higher even for new product too uh it it, it 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 heavily depends on the market of course type of construction matters but if our hurricane is is coming through a given market they're going to price all insurance high in that market so insurance is a gigantic um challenge for all operators everywhere uh unless you are in markets that doesn't see natural disaster phoenix is one of these markets that sort of been you know a little bit away from the you know no hurricanes and no tornadoes and so on but uh many other parts of the country they see hail they see tornadoes they see hurricanes they see other natural disasters so i i, I'm, I completely understand uh, and agree with you that um uh, the also the taxes going back to the taxes. So taxes are municipalities everywhere. They they're hungry for revenues, and and not much you can do. Uh, they're gonna it's a it's a perpetual battle. It's a perpetual battle. Politicians needing the the, the dollars versus the you know homeowners uh, trying to uh, uh, justify kind of what the asset is worth. There's always a legal battle. It's funny how here in New York City. For every building, you almost every year, you 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 hire an essentially a um, an attorney that every year you 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 file a petition uh, to battle the city uh, on the assessed taxes. It's, it becomes a norm. It's almost like it's given that the city will overassess. You battle it. You're gonna get a reduction. And every year, it, it's the, the lawyers make a living on this. Just that, that's all they do. They literally battle the city. For the continuous assessments, then it's everywhere. It's it's New York, it's Florida, it's Texas, it's continuous battle. So anyway, let's go back to the new construction because I'm I'm kind of um, intrigued. Uh, you're right; you could lock certain costs, and certain costs will float. Uh, and the preferred equity is an interesting piece. We've used preferred equity. I certainly like the idea of preferred equity. You have to be very comfortable and confident in your execution because you're taking on more risk with. Uh, having primary debt than preferred equity relative to the common equity. That that system makes sense as long as you can execute well. Um, the the construction also has another risk, and I don't know how you mitigate that risk. Uh, delays, um, obviously cost overruns, and uh, at times um, you've got um, sort of uncertainty of what the future rent will be. Uh, on one hand, you expect the rents to be at least in line where they are today, but if some kind of um, negative inflation or, or, or at least further slow down, um, while the insurance uh, insurance costs climb and taxes climb, before you know, you deliver a product and you may not be able to get the valuation you're expecting. That's kind of a... And there's no cash flow, right? You, you basically, at that point, just sunken in the cost to build uh, until you can deliver the product and 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 stabilize um and i've seen enough of the new product depending on the market 
uh, they build it for certain rents and they can't get those rents and then it becomes boy i mean what would you, what did we just build yeah i mean i think that's kind of where one of our competitive advantages right like we started as operators so this actually happened with our last project we finished it last year or 2022 end of 2022 and obviously wasn't a great time to kind of go to market um and so what we did we just held on to it and leased it up right so most developers are specialized in developing they don't want to get into the operation game so they try to unload it as soon as possible um that's that's usually the best time to exit if you're in a good selling market but if you're not you do what we did and we lease it up and then we kind of just hold and then lease it up and sell it at that point at that point it's less of a risk right you're not going to that lease up stage so if you have empathy to the the new buyer they're coming in with even less risk at that point when they're coming at 90% occupied. Um, yeah, I usually arbitrage purchase certificate of occupancy versus lease up. And in residential, in theory, that lease up time is not that long. So if you if you operate it well in the right market, you can get there fast. Right. <laughs> Comparison to storage, you need three years to lease up or two and a half years. Residential, if you're in a good market with good product, you could move it relatively quickly. Yeah. And that's kind of one of my prejudices going through, you know, the multifamily side is like the problem, the biggest variable is people, you know, as the saying says, tenant termites and toilets, the tenants are a big, big one. Um, and even if you have higher end tenants, they are still people and tenants with problems. Um, and, and that's, you know, going back to buying value add, um, you know, sure, you know, every deal is different right? Don't get me wrong, right? But like, if you're going after a distressed property, you got to think that that current operator has been kind of running dry on funds for several months, maybe even a year, and your occupancy and dropping, and then your tenants start to get really bad, badly behaved at that point, because things hasn't been fixed. The management doesn't care. The PM company knows that their owners are kind of going under it's just not a good situation that I want to kind of step in as the new stepfather, basically. So that's something I'm kind of worried about. If people can kind of get a sense of some of my apprehensions with, you know, going into a property that, yeah, you get it at a good price, but it's that price because of a reason, right? And that kind of gives me a little goosebumps kind of just thinking about it. Um, of course, you know, never say never, right? Who knows? We may do one of those, like I said, but Generally speaking, you're not you're going into something with a little bit of mold and hair on it if you're picking it up at a good price. And generally speaking, I mean you can make you can make money in whatever business plan you want. Typically, the more hair and mold on it, the more money you make. But that's something that, you know, we've always tried to not get into those very deep value add type of projects. We've always been, you know, buy something existing that performs pretty well or stabilize. So 90% occupied or better, you know, so we can get those Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loans right off the bat. And part of that is we don't want to deal with these really difficult tenant kind of projects. Because then, you know, now you're dealing with more of a culture issue, community issue. And, um, but sure. Yeah. If somebody out there want, likes to work on those types of deals, you know, I'm sure they'll be coming out here in a bit, but, um, boy, you got to have the stomach for that. Yeah. Lena, I, I appreciate that. That's, uh, you, 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 you had 
great wisdom in there. It's very it's a different different strokes for different folks. You prefer light lift, uh, no heavy value add because it, it is a lot of work, and we've seen this on many projects. You get a good price, but now you've got a bunch of tenants you inherited who are getting back to the COVID discussion. They were getting COVID subsidies or city had programs and these programs are running out and the tenants have stayed there without paying for a long time. And suddenly now they have to pay instead of the program paying. They don't want to do that. So as the operator, now you got to get all these people out because they are essentially, uh, you, you know, they, they, they are living for free. And then it suddenly becomes an occupancy problem. You had a great occupancy for a while, but now you've got to get them out, renovate, uh, and lease again. And you're right; it's it's a lot of work. It's it, it's a game of specialization. I would say this: if you're local, if you've got construction crews, you are you are an operator. You're like a strong local operator, and you know your market. You know how to execute. You got leasing, property management, construction management, all that stuff. You can do well. But if you're doing this from Hawaii, you're trying to operate an asset a thousand miles away or two thousand miles away or however long, you have no choice. If you go for a heavy lift, you, you, it's very hard to execute. So you're better off with very light lift, completed product, brand new construction, or fairly new, you know, last couple of years at at uh, full stabilization. You take on less risk, uh, just because you, it's very difficult to do it any other way. So I, I completely appreciate your position, and I. I certainly uh, feel that it, it is a lower risk, a little bit more stable strategy, uh, but you don't have as much upside if you can't create all that extra value in these in these assets. But you know, again, it's a risk reward, right? Most, most folks don't realize that in order to generate higher return, you have to take on more risk. Uh, there are, of course, asymmetric deals where you take, you know, you got a great deal, you're not taking that heavy risk, but you're taking still great upside if you execute but most of the deals higher risk higher reward potential, but yeah. the reverse is true lower risk lower lower reward but you have to you know you don't have as much headache yeah i mean every time we've gotten burned in the past is in terms of due diligence is on things you it's hard to quantify such as tenant quality right like you you sure you, you can go through the audits on you know credit scores and you know how much income but you know sometimes those things can be fa fabricated right um what was the the latest one like you know, it used to be you look at bank statements or stuff like that but like sometimes those can be just very fictitious right and you close on a property you you can't go back and do a lawsuit to the previous buyer or seller it's just kind of throwing good money at bad money. And that's, at least from our experience, that's always been the biggest um, kind of non-quantifiable due diligence item is that the tenant quality. And, you know, it's just kind of like the the bad thing about the developments now, where you replace one problem with another and the developments is it's hard to find a good 10 acre plus property to build on that's in the growing path of progress. There are just not many of them. Um, you know, there's quite frankly none in Phoenix because it's all infills, if anything. Um, so we're kind of more to, you know, like the Floridas, the Alabamas, the Texases out there for those. But you it has you have insurance problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we I mean kind of gone are the days, I think, for us like of doing a deal every other month. 
Um, we don't really want that type of throughput anymore. So getting more, you know, selective or having to be more selective, right? Because we can't find 10 acre lots of properties every other month or even multiple times a year, right? It's very more rare, but that's kind of what we kind of wanted to be as like the vision of, you know, how active we are in the market. So it kind of it, the transition, I think, came at the right time. Well, uh, you're getting wiser, right? Most kind of uh, wise people, they're not looking for volume. They're, they're looking for fewer, better deals, right? At the end of the day, uh, the, the volume game is it's a game of the past. When everything was going up, you wanted to run more and faster. And now when things are going in the wrong direction or things are slowing down, certainly need to do fewer, better deals. So what what have you done this year? I'm just curious. Um uh, anything super interesting? Uh, it's been slow for us. I, I can tell you, we've done a few deals, but way, way slower than than before. Just because we we just don't want to transact. Just because, uh, you know, it, it, it is a deal. We want a great deal in this environment. If we don't find a great deal, I, I'd rather sit in my hands. Yeah, I mean, we 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 kind of pulled back our normal acquisitions 2022 summertime. So after that, we transitioned to. You know, just doing our our slow, steady diet of maybe a development deal a year. So we've been doing that. Um, you know, probably like yourself, right? Um, utilizing your your network and your connections. We've been doing some preferred equity um positions, just you know, to get our money lent out in more of a secure position. You know, it's not gonna, you know, it's not breathtaking returns, of course, right? But it's kind of um, you know, getting money working that way. We actually did some deals near yourself. We, we've got that um, JFK Holiday Inn out there in Queens. If you fly over every time you go into JFK, we've got that one out there that we did preferred equity on. Um, but yeah, you know, other than I, I feel like the, the tides are turning a little bit, maybe by the end of the, this this year, maybe we'll kind of get back out there and do a little bit more stuff. But like I said, I don't know if I want to do those more distress hairy deals. Definitely want to, you know, not do a floating debt. Just find deals that are good um, fixed rate debt so we can kind of hold. And definitely, you know, properties that are a little bit nicer areas. So like B plus areas are better, I think is kind of what we would kind of go after. Again, being slighted more towards the quality of tenant than, you know, those heavy, heavy value add plays. I think if we were going to go into more of those types of deals in the future, um, and I'll, I'll give you an example of that. You know, we've got some deals in more of the inner part of Houston, right? R kind of rougher areas. Um, and then we've got other deals out like in Conroe, Texas, you know, the sub more of a suburb kind of far out there, a lot cleaner product, a lot cleaner clientele. And those are the deals that really don't give us too much problems out there. Logic dictates that, and, and plus, uh, and plus, they don't increase the the insurance or ta taxes by three times uh, um, out there in the suburbs, <laughs> to like how they do in the inner city, like Harris County. Well, yeah, it's 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 who is in charge, right? Who is especially in in uh, in some of the uh, you know politically charged uh, municipalities or cities. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of the battles going on. But I hear you. Uh, less headache, simpler life, um, still decent returns, but not not as not as exciting 
and in real estate, if you can avoid the risk and avoid extra excitement, maybe that's that's a that's a safe path. The one the one point you mentioned, and I wanted to just briefly chat on this, and we're running out of time, and just but um, I do believe that the current interest rate cycle is almost over. So floating rate debt is not. It was a big mistake a few years ago. So everyone took it because it looked it was so low, and then it jumped. But now the reverse is true. People are afraid of the variable rate debt, when in reality, because the rate cycle back up and they're approaching the peak of the current cycle, or have already approached, whether there's going to be another quarter or not, but we, we're almost at the peak. Um, at this point, I wouldn't be fearful of the variable rate debt. Although, of course, you prefer fixed rate debt because it's a, it's a one-way uh, street. Uh, but think about this for a second. If you get fixed rate debt, if you have prepayment penalty, you you can easily refinance. That's one of the well, well, that's one of the drawbacks of locking in fixed rate debt. Um, uh, it's both a beauty and a curse. The beauty is you have insurance policy, right? It's fixed. The curse is if the interest rates cycle back down and you try to refine, you got massive prepayment penalty. That's uh, that kind of slows you down. So I just wanted to point out that on the interest rate side, if you can still get bridge debt today when the interest rates are high, you can always cycle it back down when the rates are, you know, they, they like you said at the beginning of the podcast, the forward curve says in a year and a half, the interest rates should come down quite a bit. Um, and I, 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 I concur with this because the, these interest rates today are just too high for a long-term amount of debt that's out there. So that's my view. And and I'm, yeah. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> The US I, I think I think you're you're exactly right. I would just like add on to that from like the mindset of an operator here. It's kind of like don't go outside in the sun unless you have a lot of sunscreen. So like in this case, sure, interest rates are going to go down, and it makes sense to do variable rate mortgages right now because everybody's everything's telling you one way. But if you, the operator, are kind of running low on you know reserves or sunscreen, I guess in this analogy then you still may not want to go out there, I guess. Right. And I think that's I, I not looking back and maybe for the next cycle to happen, you know, you can do floating rate debt, you know, of course, buy your rate caps, but you got to have your reserves, right. Or at least the way we do it. Right. Um, you know, just in case you have to float the property, right. If you have cash reserves and you can last a while, then that's your contingency plan. But if you don't have fat reserves, like I said, even if you have floating rate or the rate caps and everything tells you that the rates are going to go down, you don't have that contingency, that backup plan, right? That's that's a great point. And I'll say this. My observation is that from the last couple of years, very few people set up the deals with a lot of reserves. Most of them painted the deals with very optimistic returns. And if they overraise capital, it, they thought that capital would be just diluting the the returns, and that it, it's a prudent conservative investing strategy to have those reserves. But a lot of people didn't do it, and the experience of the fear of the variable rate debt is from the deals that were started a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago when the rates were way lower, and the impact is that those deals are suffering. Those deals are distressed because they're running out of cash, poor reserve, like like you pointed out, and the interest rates went up. And if rate cap expires, big problems. And if on top of that, 
they didn't budget for the tenants to be more difficult than uh, they thought, and they have to get rid of bad tenants. That they're, they're suffering from operating underperformance, no reserves, interest rates up, all those things combined, it's a choke. But for fresh money today, if you were to buy a fresh deal, I wouldn't be fearful to get uh, variable rate debt. Although your equity investors, for the peace of mind, it's the sunscreen effect, right? If you tell them it's not fixed rate debt, they, 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 they can get nervous. But the reality is it's a contrarian thinking. What I'm saying is that insurance policy, buying a rate cap today and variable rate debt, the rate caps are freaking too expensive for the risk reward ratio. A few years ago, they were dirt cheap. Now it's the reverse. You're paying crazy price for something for the insurance policy you're highly unlikely to use. Yeah. So I was paying like 50 grand. Yeah. 50 grand in the past. Now that same thing is like 1.5 million. I don't know. Well, that's the crazy part. (laughs) And you pay right now, the pendulum swung exactly the opposite way. Insurance, the the companies that are effectively providing the policy, they realize the demand for those rate caps is high. But the problem is the interest rates are not going to shoot up another 150 basis points from here, highly unlikely. So these rate cap policies is almost a waste of money, but that's my, that's my two cents. Uh, so you, yeah. that's why everybody's going fixed rate because at least it feels like you, you know you you can't get uh, to a worse position with that. Appreciate your time, appreciate your wisdom, appreciate your sharing. How would folks get a hold of you? Please, you know, is there a single website or multiple website? Uh, what's the best way to reach out? Yeah, um, email lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. Lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. Thank you kindly and uh, enjoy your kid, enjoy your two-year-old. That's 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 the the most important thing in life. Family ahead of all the all the business we just talked about. Yeah, cool. Thanks, thanks, Mike. See everybody. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fun Book, head to BigMikeFun.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.